Hello and welcome into the Birds and Braves podcast. I'm Luke Winstall, joined by a special guest today, former pro bowler and Atlanta Falcon fullback, Ovi Mahaley. Thank you for joining me today, Mr. Mahaley. No problem. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. My first question for you, is there a guy in the league today that reminds you of yourself? Oh, that's a good one. Oh, man. Um, I it's, it's hard just because the fullback position has turned uh, more finesse than I'd to see it. And you see a lot of position blocking, a lot of cut blocking, and very few of the guys that I looked up to, like the Lorenzo Neals and the Max Strong, even Mike Allstott with his, uh, you know, running all over the field uh, self, uh, was still a, a pretty, you know, massive blocker or a, a punishing blocker. I'd have to say, it's terrible because I, I, I get on people for not knowing fullbacks' names because we're just as big a, a part of the team else. But I don't know the name of the fullback for the Patriots. But I remember watching the Patriots game at the Super Bowl and saying, I'm not a Patriots fan, but even a blind man can see what that fullback is doing on a consistent basis to those linebackers of the Rams. You just see him moving bodies. And when he goes in there, you see certain chess pieces move up up and back. So whoever the Patriots fullback is right now, uh, i got to give him some props because he looks like uh, how I used to block back in the day. Who would you say is the toughest person, or who would you say are the toughest guys you've ever had to block or play against? Oh, my gosh. Um, I would say Ray Lewis, but he was tough for his size. You know, being like a 230-pound uh, linebacker, 240 at times, he was you know just a beast to deal with, especially practicing against him twice a, twice a day when I was with the Ravens. And he had that whole intimidation, fear factor, uh, crazy – I that he gives you, but as far as just overall monsters I've dealt with, uh, it'd be a tie between Pikes and Michael Strahan. Uh, Strahan was one where I don't know why they made me block him, but I was a fullback. I'd go out to the edge, and he come uninhibited, unblocked, full head of steam from that from the edge in a three four position. Sometimes standing up. And I will just hold on for dear life and tell Matt Ryan to throw the ball or else I can't do anything. But I, I had a sore neck, a sore back, sore everything while I was blocking either Takeo or Mike Strahan. And speaking of Ray Lewis, do you have a favorite Ray Lewis story from your time in Baltimore? <laughs> I have a dozen favorite Ray Lewis <laughs> stories uh, in Baltimore. I mean, because just, just imagine, like, you're a kid and you're in high school and you're watching – TV, Monday Night Football was my thing. I, I don't know what it was, but the storylines and the build-up and the music, and it was like a, a male soap opera for me. So every night I watched that, and watching a Ray Lewis or a Ravens Monday Night Football game was something special because it was it was like Ray started performing for the crowd knowing it was a big-time game. So when I went through college and got drafted, just happened to go to the team where the guy who I respected and I admired uh, the most, or one of the guys I admired the most, Ray Lewis, it was the whole time I had to, I had to pretend like he was just another guy or else I, I couldn't block him because I was extremely impressed at what he did. But one, a story that <laughs> he, uh, I always tell 
box at all, especially back in the day. You'll see a bunch of rookies singing. And my thing was, I was going to sing my fight song. They're like, no, 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 that's too easy. That's too easy. So like, you're Nigerian, right? I'm like, yeah. So we got an African here. We got an African. So uh song you're going to sing is going to be picked by me. I want you to sing that Coming to America song, She's Your Queen to Be. I was like, ah, I don't know if I can sing that. He's like, well, you go and sing it, Rook. I was like, ah, all right. So I got a little falsetto because I, I used to sing back back in the day. And I did a decent job. Um, and <laughs> y'all started clapping. Like, there we go. There we go. That's my boy. And he was like, not bad, Rook. Not bad. And it's just that not bad at, at the time, you know, him being my favorite player. And I was like, Ray Lewis gave me a compliment. Then at practice, he proceeded to demolish me in, in the, on the field. But no, nah, that's just one of many uh, Ray Lewis stories. He does everything intense. He eats intense. He plays cards intense. Probably sleeps intense. Uh, so uh, he's a very uh, interesting individual. One interesting move that we've seen thus far in the NFL offseason has been the trade of Antonio Brown from the Steelers over to the Raiders. I wanted to ask your thoughts on the trade and who you think won, just as kind of an immediate reaction here. Yeah, no, good um, good question. I think that the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Raiders won. The Steelers lost out. Um, but there's, there wasn't much they can do. And I don't want to speak to their culture or their environment or what made Antonio leave because it may have been Big Ben. It may have been Mike Tomlin. It may have been the culture. It may have just been A.B. A- was ready to go, and he, he, he was tired of uh, drawing within the lines and following the rules. But if they could have found some way to keep him happy, and it, it, it sucks that that's even uh, something that we have to do for players. I feel like you know, prima donna players shouldn't be playing the league because it's a privilege and not a right. But at the same time, I feel like these guys do work hard and should be compensated and should be given – I feel like they should be given some of the, uh, uh, not leniency, but some, some, some rope to, to do what they do. And in every other profession, if you're a great lawyer, you get some, certain benefits of average lawyers will get. If you're a great doctor, you get certain benefits average doctors don't get. If you're a great NFL player, you should get certain benefits. And <clears throat> I think A.B. didn't feel like he was given those benefits, but Ben Roethlisberger was. So it, it's such for the Steelers that they don't have A.B. there. But the Raiders, if you get a happy Antonio Brown and you get somebody who's playing to the best of his abilities, he's dangerous, like dangerous, dangerous. And I think is somebody who can change the, the way they play ball, especially the fact they have a, a good quarterback in Derek Carr. So I think the Raiders won. And, and I don't know, the Steelers got what, a third round and a fifth round? Not nearly enough for, for Antonio Brown. Since you've been to a Pro Bowl, I was wondering, what do you think about the Pro Bowl format now, and how do you think it could be changed or revised to make it even more interesting and entertaining? Another good question. I got a bone to pick with the Pro Bowl. I should have been on there like three or four times rather than just <laughs> the, uh, the one time I got to the Pro Bowl and uh, the two times I was all pro because it's a popularity contest. And having the players vote on it and having the fans vote on it is – a joke. Like if you could, you know, treat me transported into our running back meeting room and see how we voted on the linebackers, it was absolutely at random. Like, like we just like, <laughs> yeah, I might get in trouble for saying this, but we we made stuff up. Like it, it was who who we knew, who we were friends with, 
who because uh, we were just trying to get out of there. We were, we were tired. It was after practice. We had to do the Pro Bowl voting, we, and we couldn't leave until we actually did something or chose someone. So like, uh, who's that guy? Yeah, he sounds good. Every positions that we just didn't know. Like, um, I don't think we choose the chose the kickers and offense couldn't choose offense. So. Back in my day, I sound old now, back in 2003, 2012, the uh, uh, running backs would choose the linebackers, the wide receivers choose the DBs, the D-line. I mean, the O-line would choose the D-line just because that's who they go up against. But we would just make it uh, whoever we thought was good. Now, it wasn't scientific. It wasn't like we would go study tape. We just kind of chose stuff. And the fans, they choose who they like. They choose who's popular. They choose whoever has the best uh, social media campaign, they're not choosing the best guy. Their guy on their team is the best guy, so I missed out so many times. But as far as the game, um, the way to make it uh, more entertaining is to not have it uh, and do something else. Make it do a flag football game because players are not going to go full speed all out and tackle each other when if you do so and you're a player who has a big contract next year, or just a player, period, because you can have a, you know, a six-year contract for $18 million like I had, but the first year is the only thing guaranteed. Second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year. If I ever went to the Pro Bowl and got hurt and then couldn't play the next year, I'd be out $3 million. So why would I logically go hard to prove something in a meaningless game where I can miss out on life-changing money for me and my family? You can't convince anyone to do that, which is why everyone's playing patty cake out there and will continue to play patty cake for the rest of the game uh, or the rest of the game's history unless they make it a flag football-type deal. They're doing skills competitions. They're trying to make it more fun, but they still have a game that is hard to watch yet still gets watched. Now to talk about the local team here, the Atlanta Falcons. What do you think is the biggest key or X factor for the Falcons to make a playoff run in 2019? Um, defense is, is, is key. Matt Ryan is consistently awesome. I'm not just saying that because uh, he was my quarterback, but you look at the stats, you look at the MVP numbers, uh, he's a Hall of Fame quarterback, and I will get, and you will probably get a lot of resistance to that because he hasn't won one. But if you look at his defenses throughout his career, there's a on Twitter or Instagram, something talking about their rank, and they've been ranked like 22nd, 25th, 26th, and not even the bottom third, like the bottom fifth, the bottom like tenth, like it's the last couple of spots year after year. And we were um, a little bit, a little bit better during our Super Bowl run, but for the most part, which is crazy because we had a defensive coach in Mike Smith and defensive coach in Dan Quinn. He's been dealing with some subpar defenses. And if we want to get to a Super Bowl and win a Super Bowl, we got to have a defense that can measure up. You know, staying healthy is just one piece of it. There's been Super Bowl team after Super Bowl team that have had key injuries and someone stepped up. So that's uh, having depth. That's at our GM spot, really making sure we can have the next man up be not just a placeholder but a contributor. Uh, offensively, I guess – uh, if we had somewhere to really grow, it'd be offensive line. Matt Ryan and Julio and uh, the rest, uh, Sanu and the rest of our guys are so talented. They just need Matt Ryan to stay on his two feet so he can get the ball out of his hands, which is 
difficult at times. We've, we've gotten better, but we can't stop. Start, you know, we can't we can't continue to piecemeal our offensive line and just hope we can get you know a, a seventh round draft pick to step up or get a uh, a free agent that we're paying uh, a veteran minimum for to play like an all star. The Falcons made some big coaching changes this offseason. They added Dirk Cutter, former Falcons offensive coordinator, but they also brought in the offensive coordinator that you played for, Mike Malarkey. So what are your thoughts on the coaching moves, and what does having two people that were recently head coaches bring to the offensive unit? That's going to be interesting. i got to go see Mike. Mike is my guy. Um, I almost went to play for Mike when, I, uh, when the Falcons released me when he was a head coach down at, I think it was Tennessee or wherever it was. Uh, I was thinking about it, but my, my 10 years of, of uh, fullback, I guess, was enough, my wife said, of uh, those concussions. I think it's much of malarkey that malarkey's not the OC. Uh, you know, I, I feel like we had some great years under him, and he was uh, helping us, uh, young Matt Ryan, play at his best because he put some pressure off him with a, a killer running game. Again, you know, full, full of disclosure, I was part of that killer running game, so I thought it was killer. <laughs> but, but we had uh, we had crazy stats. We were leading the NFL in rushing, top you know one, two, or three teams year after year. I, I think it's going to be good unless things don't go good. If we have a slow start, there are going to be it's going to be impossible for Michael Hart to keep his uh, uh, you know his voice down or, or to bite his tongue and not tell Dirk Cutter or others what he feels like should be happening. And I know that you can't, in the coaching ranks, say, yo, put the second-string quarterback in, but there will be people in the Falcons fandom saying, hey, put the second-string office coordinator in, which is Malarkey versus Cutter, because you can put their records side-by-side and their stats side-by-side, which I think a couple of people have done, and – Malarkey wins out a lot of the time, especially in, in balanced and balanced offense. So it's um, it's going to be it, it'll be good as long as we start off winning. It'll be it'll be good as long as uh, we um, don't have any issues with our our run game. That's where Mike excels. So I I think that if they can work together, that'll be a, a great way for the offense to cover all bases. And you mentioned Matt Ryan earlier. He's got to adjust to another offensive coordinator. It's his fifth time adjusting. How big of an adjustment will it be for Matt to switch offensive coordinators again, even though he is familiar with Cutter and Malarkey? I think, uh, unfortunately, he's getting kind of used to it. (laughs) He's had a lot of practice switching uh, coordinators, so the more it happens, the easier it is, and like you mentioned, because it's someone he has familiarity with, I think he could jump into uh, the saddle and get back on board sooner than he would with most uh, OC. So I think that that won't be the issue. The issue is going to be is that the system that's going to work for Matt right now and what worked for the best is as hard as it is for me to say because I don't like this guy, uh, Shanahan. Uh, Shanahan's system worked the best for him. And when, uh, you know, the Shanahan's replacement came in, he tried to do a hybrid of Shanahan system and Dirk Cutter did something. Shanahan took a little bit from Dirk Cutter and Dirk Cutter took a little bit from Michael Larkey, but not too much. And It's a smorgasbord of systems right now, so it's about 
you know, clearing your mind and just finding what works for Matt. Because if he's happy, if he's comfortable, if he can make the audibles, then you got a good system. And you saw Matt Ryan when he was a rookie. You played with him in his first few years in the league. What is the biggest difference in Matt's game from then to where we are now? Matthew Ice is the man. Uh, he has grown so much, and it's uh, it's going to be even cooler when he does go to the Hall of Fame um, after he wins the Super Bowl before he retires because he's going to win one. He, if he has to drag his whole team on, on their backs and let everyone ride his coattails, he's going to win one. But I think Matt's changed. The, the easiest thing is, is his confidence. You know, going from a, a first, second, third-year guy where – <laughs> he's, his voice is cracking in the huddle to where he's like, oh, but you got my back. I'm like, yeah, but I got you. Uh, to where he can close his eyes and be able to know where everyone is in the field because his preparation is so solid now. When I was uh, leaving out my, my fifth, um, fourth, fifth years with, with the team, Matt was just a maniacal worker. He was always doing extra film sessions. He was always staying after the uh, practice was over to work on balls. And he did it as a rookie, but he took it to a new level where I'm like, Matt, getting dark. Matt, we have another meeting. Get off the field. Matt, come on. <laughs> Let's go. And I think it's contagious when you see your quarterback from minicamp working out in the offseason to uh, out there doing throws with wide receivers and tight ends and fullbacks uh, before practice and after practice to uh, doing halftime uh, adjustments because he's so locked in, telling the coaches what he wants to do and kind of taking over. He, he's just growing his leadership and his um, uh, uh, vocal leadership because it's easy to lead by example, but to do both, to have the confidence to speak up and raise low play for everyone else, that's more difficult to do. And Matt's been doing a pretty good job at it. And my final question for you, how has life after football been for you, and what are you up to now? Another good question. Um, life after football is great, man. Now, at first, uh, it wasn't so great. I still wanted to play, despite my wife's wishes to let 10 years be enough and to take the 100 concussions that I've gotten as a sign that it was time to change careers. I still thought I had it, and I wanted to prove to the Falcons, the NFL world, that I did, and it was torture watching horrible fullback play when I was still working out. I was 6'2", 245, 5% body fat, walking around a grocery store, just big and strong and fast for nothing. You know, like, for 20 years I played football and I want to like run through a wall or run somebody's head through a wall or, you know, show people that I'm a physical specimen of awesomeness at the fullback position. But I could, you know, I was doing TV, I was doing radio, I was, you know, interviewing people. I was, I was staying close to the game and doing something I enjoyed, but I wasn't playing football. So that first year or two was tough, but life after that got better just because I realized that I got to do something that very few people get to do, and it was a, a, a definitely an honor and an experience that I could never duplicate uh, or, or replicate. And um, I, got, I found uh, new passions. Uh, uh, I started working in the medical sales field, um, my father's a doctor, my sister's a doctor, so now I help doctors uh, improve patient outcomes, increase their practice revenue, and do everything from labs to devices to uh, various solutions and, and ancillary services. But my foundation is my 
true, true passion. Um, I use sports to promote sustainability. I'm all about making sure that the environment is the issue people know about and care about because whether you believe in climate change and global warming and all that stuff, whether you think it's your issue or your problem, it's still something that has to that you have to deal with and still something we all have to deal with. And I want to make sure I give my kids and, and all kids a future they can be proud of. So we have a comic book uh, that's about sports and the environment. We're using uh, gamification. We're using some augmented reality, uh, STEM curriculum. We have all types of fun ways to get people, especially underserved communities, in- engaged in being part of the solution rather than just deal with the problems. So my website is omfgreen.org. That's O-M-F-G-R-E-E-N.org. You can purchase the first epic issue of Gridiron Green, my comic book to talk about the environment and uh, get involved with what we're doing to help kids learn about uh, sustainability. Awesome. Mr. Mahaley, thank you so much for your time and for joining me on the show. No problem, buddy. Thanks for having me. You're welcome.